G'day everyone, welcome to Did You Know with Watto. I'm Watto, and in today's episode, I chat with Brian Cadd about some things that maybe you didn't know. For more episodes, you can check out my YouTube channel or the podcast app, and follow my social media at Lindsay Waddington Music. Hope you enjoy. Got a good friend here, and he's one of Australia's most iconic figures as a songwriter and artist, and he's done so much all around the world. It's Mr. Brian Cadd. Hello, mate. Hey, Hi. I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm fabulous. It's great to have you in the studio uh, having a yak. You're usually here playing piano or writing or singing. Or That's right. This man here has written so many hits for other artists and also for himself, and we'll get on to that. But, Brian, where did you start from, mate? I started in Western Australia. And my, my, I was the eldest kid. And by the time I was about three or four or five or something, like most families in those days, you inherit the family upright. Yeah, you yeah. Know, the upright piano. It always sits in all. Nobody ever plays it. Yeah. And when I was really young, I used to start, I could start to pick melodies and things out. And my mother was a failed soprano. Right, she was a great soprano, but she couldn't stand audiences. So when I came along and I started and she sort of turned to focus on me. So anyway, so lots of lovely things happened. And then when I was 12, um, Ralph Harris was doing a, a, a special, um, a New Year's Eve special it was, and he wanted a young kids band. So we were all, everyone was asked to submit submissions for people. So I went along to the auditions and I got the gig as the piano players. And we did the New Year's Eve show. And it was all good, and I was terrified. I was just <laughs> television, because it had only just started. Yeah. And uh, anyway, nothing happened all the school holidays. At the end of the school holidays, Channel 7 rang my mother and said, I don't suppose you'd consider him being on television regularly because we want to keep that band together and have it every Friday as a special thing. So, of course, she said yes, regardless of what I was. Anyway, it turned out to be the luckiest thing that ever happened to me because for a year, um, I was on television every week. And I defy you if you're 12 years old and that happens to you for a year not to know what you want to do. It's massive, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, that was it for me. Yeah. And so that's in WA. What then dragged you out of your home state to come east? My father was in the public service. And in those days, the only way you could get promotions was either you had degrees and all those kind of things or as my father came off a farm so he just had basic education. So if he wanted to get further up the chain, he would have to apply for gigs and they weren't always in Western Australia. He applied for one in Tassie and got it. Yeah. So there we were at 14, I was 14, but I lucked in and I, I joined one of the local bands. And so by the time I was 15 or so, I was playing gigs and I really loved it. And then he got a gig in Melbourne. So I went to Melbourne and that was when it really all happened to me. And I, I guess by the time I was about 16 or 17, I was I completely lost interest in school and left and joined a band. He was horrified, <laughs> absolutely horrified. And then by, by the time I worked through a few bands, and then by the time I was 20, I joined the group, the group, mm -hmm. G-R-O-O-P, and um, I wrote my first ever song I wrote was a song called Woman, You're Breaking Me, which went to number one. And I thought, well, how easy is this? <laughs> Took me a while to get another one, but, <laughs> but that's sort of that's from that point on. And they were a professional group, yeah, which didn't mean that they earned any money much, but it meant that that's what they did. A living. My yeah. father was horrified. Yeah, no, a living. You're going to do that for anyway. I, I just did it. My mother said, "You need to go and do it," and that was the beginning of it. 
the piano has always is it the only instrument, Brian, or you tamper with no, other no, instruments? No, no, I was warned against tampering. Yeah. No, people said you'll never do that. No, but I, I because I played piano at such an early age, every time that someone would say, look, you know, I'll show you a few chords, they just seem so horrendously difficult compared to, oh, I know how to do it. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I'd much rather concentrate on writing stuff than learning instruments, you know. Yeah. I don't really want to be a reasonably good guitar player or a reasonably good drummer or a reasonably, I'm a reasonably good piano player, but I want to write. So very early that happened. The good thing about it, though, is like as I've been lucky enough to be working with you in the studio, when you become what you are in your music, you're the best at what there is. Like we've got fabulous piano players, but when you're after that, Brian Cadd, mm. that's a great thing when you create something that's so original. You're yeah. the best at that. It's voice, movement, hands, all one thing, and that's so good. The, the marriage of them is, quite, and you know, unfortunately it's not that common but I was I was lucky, and I think I was lucky because I started out being a piano player, and then I added a bit of singing. Yeah, and then I did the vo did the writing thing last. So yeah. I had kind of a build up in history. So it wasn't like I tried, you know, I played three chords and then I tried to write the Messiah. You know, it wasn't yeah. I, I, it took me a long time to get to write songs. I was twenty. Do you like all facets of it, mate, or would you have rather been a session player or a singer or a writer, or you just love the whole business? I love the whole thing, and for a long time I was a session player. And, in, and a producer too, you are, yeah, yeah. And I had a label and stuff, and we had a lot of success with that label. And then years and years later I did a six-month consultancy with Mojo, the, the uh, advertising agency. Yes, yeah. They were good friends of mine. They said, oh, we've got a whole campaign going, you know, you don't have to come and do it from wherever you live. And so I, and for six months, I, apart from touring and everything else, I did, I also did all these um, feel like a twoies and all those things, yeah, well. all those ads. And it was not something that I wanted to do my whole life, but I always wanted to do it. And I've been lucky in that sense. And I've been lucky in the sense that I've written for films, including, you know, themes for class assembly and all those sort of things. And I wouldn't want to do that all the time, but I had a shot at it. And that, yeah. and, you know, that part of it worked. So if I look back at my life, it's really about the fact that I got to do several different things yep. along the path that I travel. And hone in on what yeah. you actually want to excel yeah. at. But I'm not envious of people who do those things because I had a go at them. Yeah, know, yeah, and yeah. Just enjoy them. Yeah. And like even uh, a couple of nights ago, I was watching uh, the John Farnham, like the, the Wheatley story and that sort of thing. Mm. One of your songs pop up in that, like they just keep popping up everywhere. Like it, it's an amazing career you've had and still got like, we're working on some original stuff now, which I reckon is as good as anything you've ever done, Brian. You haven't lost it. You're not wimping out. Your music is still so relevant and so great. And it's because of your ticker, mate. Like like once again, I, I talk from my experience. I get to sit there behind the computer. Mm -hmm. It's the passion. It's the energy you put into it. Like it's, um, look, if you're not given 150%, you're going home. You're saying, look, I'll do it another day. That's right. And that's where the music wins, I think. It does. And it's the old thing. I, I talk to young writers and I say, this, this is not a gig. This is not a nine to five. Mm -hmm. You do this every waking moment. You might need to know you are, but all of a sudden you'll write something down and you won't realise that it's come out of your subconscious and your subconscious is feeding you ideas all the time. You have to be so dedicated in this field, uh, you know, as you are as well, that it's not something you say, okay, well, I'm going now, it's five o'clock. 
and, and in fact, that's one of the things that in, in Nashville was a bit hard for me when I lived there, a bit hard for me to get used to. Time slots. Because they would go, oh, we've got, we got a 10 o'clock or a 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock's gone, but we can do 10 or 2. And you think, how does anyone write three songs in one day? Yeah. It might take me five days to write a song, but in the end, I've got the one I want, not the one that you have to finish in three hours. Because it's a job. Yeah. yeah. That's incredible. So one of the, the biggest songs, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the massive songs is Ginger Man. Mm-hmm. Even now, like I was lucky not long ago to sit in a show with you, your good friend Glenn Shorrick, who's another an amazing act and artist. Oh, yeah. he, he's a talent plus, but sat in that show straight away uh, from kids to grandparents. Like your show, like has a wide range of people in there, and they're all singing it. Mm. Like as soon as you start Ginger Man, you could have. It's nearly like um, our national anthem. Everybody knows it, and it's this feeling across the whole crowd. And it's not a small room; it's a big room. Mm-hmm. So would it be one? Would it be the biggest or one of Brian? No, I think or? probably the biggest one is. Is Little Ray Sunshine is probably the most oh, yeah. known, yeah. but Let Go has been recorded 67 times around the world. It's been number one five times in different countries, wow. including not once, but twice in South Africa in Swahili. Really? Which is the version I'd like to do for you now. <laughs> <laughs> that was a shock. But so it, very often it's not the one that you're most known for as an artist. Hmm. You know, it's another whole complete deal when the song goes off and runs around the world and gets itself cut and recorded and things and whatever. It must be a real buzz though, like because Glenn Campbell was one of, like he, he's a megastar, oh, he's passed away now, but still his music's still oh, yeah. as big as anything. That was on Southern, his version of that was on Southern Nights, with, Southern Nights which was probably his biggest album. Yes. Yeah. But my very favourite version is by Derby Gray because I was always a, such a fan of Derby. Yeah. And he did a great version of it and it was released on the day that his record company went into insolvency. So there's mega songs but you've done anthems, you've done all that sort of thing. And the greatest thing is, Brian, you're still touring extensively. Oh, yeah. And I think that's exciting too because – your music will never die, and that's something else I want to talk about. What is it, on you, in your opinion, like there's no rights or wrongs, but I'm, I'm writing songs too, a lot of us are, but they don't seem to get that traction like in the old days. Like those old songs are still getting played today. Mm. Is it, uh, what's the secret or you don't know or what, is, no, what do you I think? Do, I, well, I don't know, but I th- I'm guessing, but I, my guess is that it's because back in the old days it was a premium entertainment moment, you know, we, we listened to songs way before even television arrived, songs were at the helm of everything, there weren't that many talk shows, they were mostly about the top 10 or the top 100, and and people went and stood in on Saturday morning in the middle of a, an old record store and they went through thousands of records and it was a lifestyle, it was just, the music was there, it was easily obtainable and there were live shows everywhere playing the things that you were hearing on the radio. and. That bred a certain kind of an audience, an audience who even today will turn up at our shows and they haven't lost the vibe about being an audience. They still yeah. want to get out and do it and be it. Whereas I think nowadays there are so many options. Kids choose music as one of the things, and I don't think the most important thing for them is a song. Mm. I think the most important thing might be a game or it might be a yep. WeChat or it might be a thing. Or a yeah. 
Whereas in our days, we really didn't have anything else, you know. Yeah. And we'd sit there in the afternoon with our mates and we'd have the thing. If you have, you're lucky enough to have a stacker, you could put four or five on at one time. You didn't have to do any work, you know. Yeah. And, and we played records to each other. That's so different from what happens nowadays. I'm, I'm not denigrating it now. I'm just saying that. that it's a different change in the industry, yeah. Uh, and because of that, when people went into our industry, it was really, really incumbent upon them to write songs and record songs that would become hits because that was the centre of our universe. And, and it'd probably be fair too, like um, it'd be so accessible for people to buy a computer and a recording program and with certain ways these days they can program it or do what they do and they can just put a song out there. But back when you're talking about it cost a lot of money for session musicians who could play those songs, oh, yeah. producers, studios, record companies. Pressing, so, so artwork, everything. So you wouldn't actually say, oh, this song might do something. You're like, you've got to really feel something for that song. You're like, I'm not wasting my money. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the record companies were very much like, they'd just say, no, it's not, not a single. Not yeah. a single. That's a single. Yeah. You know, and they're not, they weren't just people off the street. They were music industry people. Yeah. Who could pick them? And so some of the miraculous hits that were hits early in the, in, the, in pop music were based on not only the fact that people really loved what they heard, but a lot of the songs came from unusual places. Like you would never say in a million years that the loved one by the loved ones yeah. was in any stroke of the imagination a normal song yeah. or a normal record. Mm. You know, And there's lots of them back in that period that were so weird and so different. Yeah. So original, but everyone appreciated that. I tend to think there is a kind of a, well, that thing did, did well, so, and he does that a bit like he does, so we'll sign him and we'll get him to do one of those. A bit more formulated. Yeah, so, it is. Yeah. They, they, they tend to put ahead of them the things that have already been hits and they go out and they go after them, sign people like that. Well, that's working what Brian's doing or that's working what John's doing. We'll just do what they're doing. That's right. Yeah, so or what Bob Dylan did, or what the Stones were, or anyone. Yeah, so I get it. So how many John, how many Paul McCartney's are there really? Yeah. So yeah. let's let's be an individual. That's a great point. So you know, you're saying to young artists out there, you know, find who you are and be the best at you, not trying to be somebody else. Absolutely. Impersonate yourself. A guitar player, a famous guitar player, said that once. It might have been Clapton. It said, "I like the best guitar." It was Clapton. Clapton said, "I'm not the best guitar player in the world." but I'm the best Eric Clapton. Beautiful words. And that was sort of a great focus for me. That was like, yeah, why am I trying to knock Bob Dylan off? Or da -da -da, I'll just be as good as I can be doing what I do. And my first big influence wasn't the Beatles, although I loved the songs that they wrote and the records they made. But as a band, they didn't turn me on anywhere near as much as the Stones. The Stones, for me, were the, and remain the quintessential Rock band, you know, yeah. um, and even though back in those days they could hardly play really, yeah, and they couldn't sing much, and, but they had that energy, that single focus that made them different from any other band in the world. Um, and then I, then I progressed from there to the band. Yep, you know, I fell in love with the band and and uh, their beautiful albums, and that took me a while. I was th three or four or five years pretty much immersed into that. Um, but in the same time, Joe Cocker was out and Leon Russell was with him. And if I really closed my eyes, that's a band I wanted not to be but to have. Did you ever get to meet Leon Russell? Oh, yeah. There was one night we were rehearsing in Melbourne and they were out on tour. And 
the guy that brought them out on tour was also the recording singer here, label. So he rang the – well, we were rehearsing in a studio, and he rang and said, listen, Leon Russell wants to come over and meet Brian. What do you think? And the guy, without asking me, said, oh, no, just come, come on over. So he brought the whole band, you know, all these <laughs> amazing players and everything. And they, oh, we were in the middle of something, and – they just came in behind us and there was a I was playing piano and singing this song and there was a Hammond organ there. And I heard the Hammond organ go on and I thought, oh, that's a bit weird. And it started to play and I looked over and there's Leon and he just smiles at me like that. And we played the song and it went all the way to the end and, you know, and then they all clapped and all his band and everything and Leon walked over to me and he said, uh, well, I guess we went to different schools together, didn't we? <laughs> So we had ten minutes to figure out what that meant, but Ryan, that was perfect. So we had a great night. We sparred and they'd record something and then we'd record something. It was it was beautiful. I only saw him a couple of other times shortly, for brief periods after that. But he was, you know, it was an amazing soul and there are very few pianos, piano, rock piano players in the world who are like him. Yeah, that's great. And now um, Elton John is like a superstar too, like piano player, singer. Like I said, you're so unique, you can't say you like that or he's like you or Leon Russell or anything like that. You're all individuals. But did you ever get time to spend or talk to him or get his thought process behind piano, singing, performing? No, I didn't. I only met him very briefly with Meldrum. Yeah. And we were in Brisbane and he was playing the Brisbane Festival Theatre or whatever it was. It's right in the beginning. And, uh, he, you know, he looked like a... Yeah. An entourage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like his own entourage. Yeah. Like something out of um, some fair or something, light bulbs. It wasn't in his duck suit, was he? No, it wasn't, <laughs> but it was, it was just as good as that. And I was going through my very sensitive and dark period, so I had a beard on and it was black and down here and long sort of stringy hair down here, and I had a black T-shirt and then jeans and jeans and jeans. <laughs> and Molly says, quick, come on in. I want you to meet Elton. And he, so he throws me into the thing and I'm there. And Elton's there with his makeup and doing all his thing. And he turns around and, and uh, Molly says, oh, this is Brian Cadder. Uh, this is Elton John. He said, oh, pleased to meet you. And I shook his hand. And, and Elton's, and, and Molly said, he's Australia's equivalent of you. And Elton looked at me, and I'm, I can imagine what he thought. You know, this guy looks like he's, <laughs> he looks like he's in death leopard. He's got feathers he, coming. That's right, and he's got her feathers and the lights are on. And all. Anyway, we smiled and went on. I never saw him again. I mean, I saw him on, on stage and stuff, but I never ran into him again. It was a wonderful partnership, though, too, Brian, him and Bernie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a blessed partnership because separately – they didn't make sense, but together, and they they very rarely ever saw each other. It's incredible, he, isn't it? He lives and still lives in a little tiny town in Wales, and he'd just mail them in the post. Uh, There'd be these weird pages of sort yeah. of thinks and thoughts and lines and things, and then he would be in London and he'd just bang away until he got them to fit into what he liked. Yeah. But what they, what they combined to produce are some of the greatest pop records of all time. Absolutely. I, I don't know that you can beat. Still played today. Uh, yeah. And that's why they're still played today because even people who were, you know, people who were 10 and 12 and 15 yeah. still get off on it. Now, you've had, like, people out there 
would know, but when you, and you can't, we haven't got long enough to talk about it all, but some things that are amazing because people like yourself, you see like John Farnham was already a superstar by the time I sort of grew up at my age and that sort of thing. Mm. But you tell great stories like back before he was like John Farnham, the voice and all that sort of stuff. Like when you went to Japan, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. For the, for the um, International Song Contest. And, and uh, he was, it was great because at that point in time, he was between tours and between albums and he's never been to Japan. And John, oh, yeah, I'll have a go. So off we went to Japan. And I didn't realise, because I just knew him, but I would see, we'd be walking along the street and he's, you know, six, six foot or close to six foot. And in those days he had this enormous mane of gold hair. <laughs> he was a great looking guy and looked fabulous and smiled, this great smile. And the Japanese thought he was an alien. They thought he'd flown in from somewhere because he was, he was so special. Yeah. And then people would openly go, as they watched him walk past. That's incredible. And so when we went and we were up there doing the show, doing the song and everything, there was about ten or 15,000 people in the Budokan uh, arena and all these little girls are going. <laughs> <laughs> and that was for you? Yes. And then you know, I said, this is my friend John. He said, oh, yeah, right. But, you know. It's incredible, mate. You, like I said, and you've you've worked and you've been blessed. You've written for most of our stars, still doing great records. Um, proud to be involved in this one at the moment. It's a beauty, mate. Your songwriting is still fantastic and the playing is great and you've still got it. What? Yes. Oh, uh, mate. Taking the pill. Yeah. <laughs> That's not my joke. <laughs> That's Shark's joke. Don't blame me. Thank Brian Cad. Good on you, Brian. Thanks for coming along, mate. On you, mate. Keep going. I will. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. For more episodes, you can check out my YouTube channel or the podcast app and follow my social media at Lindsay Waddington Music. See you all down the track somewhere.